nine at Radio Free America, and this is Uncle Sam with music and the truth until dawn. Right now, I've got a few words for some of our brothers and sisters in the occupied zone. The chair is against the wall. The chair is against the wall. John has a long mustache. John has a long mustache. It's 12 o'clock, Americans, another day closer to victory. And for all of you out there on or behind the lines, this is your song. Now you cut that fence and get this platoon on the move! Well, listen, you crummy flat-footed copper, I'll show you whether I lost my nerve and my brains. Man, we like to feel that we can get out of trouble quicker than we got into it. I'm not fighting for anything anymore except myself. I'm the only cause I'm interested in. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters. Welcome back to the Mountain Pass podcast. This is your host, TJ Martinell. And I'm coming to you from my <laughs> my new Fortress Americana in the heart of Cascadia. Sorry, I had to pause because I'm moving my microphone from the old set to the new set. Sorry, actually, from the new set to the old set. For the last couple of years, I've been doing the podcast on a my microphone stand that the original mic came with from the Amazonians. And that is the antique clock. The date is November 18th, 2021. Another 15 days to flatten the curve to AC, two years after COVID. Still moving into the new place. I finally dealt with a couple of problems for those of you tuned into last time's episode on Mountain Pass Podcast. Dun, 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 dun. We got to tune in the, uh, the Republic serial cliffhanger. I was dealing with drainage issues with a whole bunch of stuff, and so I finally dealt with that today with the bathtub. So <clears throat> all the joys of home ownership. Though I got to say, once you finally get used to understanding how things work, I've been watching a whole bunch of YouTube videos to try and understand, like, how does plumbing actually work? If you strip away everything in the house, where's the plumbing? What, what's that pipe for? And all that kind of stuff. And I had to ask that question in my old house because all the original piping that they didn't remove was still there. So it's like, what is this doing here? And I realized, oh, it's not doing anything. It's just what they originally had and they replaced it. And I turned on the air vent, the, uh, the furnace. I have a natural gas furnace for the first time yesterday. And holy mackerel, that thing heats up this place very quickly. I was in my study when we were doing the Masculine Geek D&D campaign last night. And... I got. I felt like I was in a sauna. Uh, that that room gets really warm very quickly. Still chipping away at the fireplace, trying to get rid of that old paint. Uh, if you gotta, if you can avoid stripping paint from from masonry, uh, I would recommend doing so because it's a pain. There's a uh, there's a man, a wood mantle that I'm gonna strip the paint from, but that's gonna be easy because I can just sand it because it's wood. So I'm gonna sand it and then I'm gonna stain it. I'm actually working on bookshelves right now. I bought a bunch of uh, pine boarding at the hardware store, sanded it down, put some of this gunstock stain. And so I'm trying to decide whether I wanna make an actual bookshelf or if I wanna have shelving around the, the study, because that's gonna be more efficient, uh, both in terms of the boards and the use of space. Uh, but, <clears throat> you know, who knows? Still trying to figure that stuff out. 
So I had a couple of things I want to talk about on this episode. I think the first one is this idea, this just reality. It's a re, it's a reality. It's not not a, a myth. It's not a it's not a theory. It's it, I absolutely believe this. People cling to narratives, and by narrative I mean story. There's a story of the universe, and they, there's their life story fits into it. But they will cling to one that doesn't hold up to the facts if it helps them give a sense of stability and structure to their, to their lives. You know, I've been watching people go through different life stages, life transformations. They've been doing one thing and then they, you know, in a particular, I've seen a lot of people who've been going back to religion and they get into these very unique, uh, I'd say interpretations of just the world and, and world history. And when you actually listen to them make an argument for what they believe or what how they interpret things, it really doesn't stand up to scrutiny in a lot of cases, in my opinion, because I've been I, there's a lot of guys I follow and I read their stuff and I'm thinking, okay, I'll give it a go, just curious to see what they say. And I don't think this is I don't think this makes people bad. I don't think it makes people evil. I don't think it makes them malicious. But when someone's worldview, particularly something that they've known their whole life or they've just known for a long time is shattered, they are going to cling to a narrative that helps them make sense and that provides emotional, mental, and spiritual stability. I think that this is because, and, and what ends up happening is people have a tendency to, to, to accept and to embrace a simplistic narrative. This is what I'm kind of getting at is that they accept a simplistic narrative because I, I, let's, let's be very frank back thousands of years ago, you didn't have to figure these things out because you didn't have the access to the knowledge and information that we have today. If you were some random guy in say the middle ages, you couldn't read and write. So you didn't have to figure out this stuff. You didn't have to process these, this knowledge. You didn't have to filter through whether this information was fake or whether it was real. You dealt with the realities of life. Like is this, the way we're doing these crops, is it going to grow or not? And then you found out when your crops grew or if they didn't. Uh, does this tool make it easier to do my job? Like they lived in a very, they lived in a very real world in terms of this is or it isn't and we will find out very quickly. It was a world where you couldn't really live in, not to be overly simplifying, <laughs> irony, but I think that these people lived in a world where if something wasn't practical or sustainable, oftentimes in a lot of, in most cases, they could, they just couldn't afford to do it because there wasn't a level of technological comfort, convenience, advancement that enabled you to be an idiot. 
and I'm not saying everybody who adheres to simplistic narratives is an idiot. I'm saying they really just didn't have to concern themselves with understanding world history. And I, I, I frankly, they probably also adopted simplistic narratives because it just, if it, it, so much of this stuff is an abstract. I mean, we're talking about a time period back in medieval times when most people never left their village. You got married to somebody who was in your village. You probably did the same career as your dad. And that was just the end of it. There, you didn't have to figure out, you know, I, I, years ago I talked with uh, my friend Aaron about Aaron Clary, captaincapitalism.blogspot.com. I was talking to him about this, this within the dating world, this illusion of um, unlimited choices. And this idea that the internet and online dating creates this sense of just perpetual, like there's always going to be a better, better choice around the corner. So don't settle for this one right here. And this is something that people back in medieval times did not, this was not a problem for them. It's like, yeah, there may be a better wife for me somewhere in, you know, you're living in France. Well, yeah, she might be in, I'm in the south of France and maybe there's a better girl up in Normandy, but guess what? I'm not ever going to go to Normandy. I don't live there. I'm never going to visit and I don't have the money. So it, it, practicality and just life circumstances meant you pick what you have in front of you and that's it. And you wouldn't sit around saying, can I really do better than who I have right here? <coughs> that was something that the aristocracy and nobility and men of power and influence and resources and wealth had access to. So <clears throat> not to sidetrack too much, but it, this is an example of where too much information and too much access to too many people creates, it makes things complicated. Everything you can't deal with in a, in a nuanced way, or sorry, you can't deal with everything in a simplistic way. And, I, and I'm not saying that this is just with world history. I see this just with people and like the way that they perceive reality. They have, they, they have had a life experience. Their life experience has either been really positive or really negative. And they take that and they assume that that is the way it is for everyone else around them. Like everyone else had the same life choices. Everyone else had the same opportunities or lack thereof. Everybody had... Or maybe they assume people didn't. They, they make an assumption about how life is when it is infinitely more complicated than that. But how do you perceive reality then? You know, my, <clears throat> I think that's one of the difficulties I have with talking to people about stuff is that I just, my, my life circumstances and experiences has exposed me to just how complicated and um, not straightforward and not black and white life can be. And then you read actual history and you realize, oh, there, you know, the guys that you thought were great, um, there were a lot of bad guys within the good guys. And then there was a lot of guys within the bad guys who weren't necessarily the worst people in the world. So how do you, in an overall sense, like what's your over, what's the general analysis? <laughs> And this is back when people just start, they just do a, they overgeneralize because it's their way of processing the world because it's just too much energy to deal with that stuff. 
I think the problem with that is that's fine if you're going to adopt that as a personal private view. But when you're going to go advocate for that elsewhere, that's a bit of a problem because you have to explain things that are complicated. They're just difficult to explain. They're difficult to understand. You have to spend a lot of time trying to contextualize. I mean, this is one of the problems with being a historian and writing about different time periods. There was that fantastic book I've, I've talked about, the, the Greatest Night, about William Marshall. And the historian does us the uh, the the uh, he does us a great service by going into the context of many of the situations that William found himself in, where he was saying this is what it was like in medieval Europe. This is this is what the morality was at the time. This was the context of his social class, and this was what was considered acceptable and not acceptable behavior. And we may think of it as not acceptable behavior or not appropriate or, or appropriate, but that's not the world that they were living in. And they were not living in a world, they were, you know, they, one of the things about it is they were living in a world where being merciful could actually be dangerous because it was seen as weak. You know, showing compassion could get you killed. So a lot of times when men seemed ruthless, they were actually not evil people. And there was actually, I was reading this article, I don't have it anymore, but there was, um, it was talking about how, uh, it was some article or essay that was going into the private account or, or diary of a knight who, based on what they saw, was suffering from PTSD because of some of the stuff that he had seen and done. Like this was a guy, like these knights were not merciless, morally bankrupt uh, sociopaths or psychopaths and, and, and cold-hearted killers. These were guys who, were raised to be knights because that was their profession and they went out and did it, but they had incredibly uh, heart, uh, heavy hearts about some of the stuff that they were ordered to do. And they were very much concerned with their, frankly, their spiritual status as a result of, of the violence. Uh, you know, sexual morality was not as big of an issue in the medieval times for better or for worse, but like that was just not, the narrative at the time was not concerned about with sexual morality. Their concern was for violence because Europe at the time was very violent. And knights were expected to engage in, in uh, a inordinate amount of violence on behalf of uh, whoever they were serving. So, you know, how, do, how would a knight process that? And that's how the code of chivalry was developed, where they're like, okay, we're not going to be able to prevent wars. We're not, the Catholic Church realized we're not going to be able to prevent wars. We're not going to be able to stop violence. We're just going to create, like, if there's going to be fights between different Christian nations and peoples, we're going to set up some rules for how they're allowed to, how they need to interact with each other. So again, this was an example of where the Catholic Church realized the complexity of the world that they lived in and said, okay, we're not, we're not going to end this stuff, but we can create a narrative that is acceptable to everyone on all sides. And it wasn't always followed, but eventually it create, it, it, the code of chivalry became so strong within the warrior class, the, the knightly class, that it had you were expected to follow it if you were part of the knights, if you were a, a cavalryman at the time. But they created a narrative. Like, if you want to be one of these people and you want to be in good standing with the, with the church, you need to behave by these rules. You need to adhere to these co this code. 
And while it was simple, it also didn't deny the realities of, of the world. It didn't, it didn't pretend like things weren't, like the fact that the code existed, the narrative existed, was to deal with the realities of, of life that they knew that they couldn't just dictate away. Well, we see this especially with people who are trying to explain how we got to this point. You know, everybody's got their, what I call the, I call it the boogeyman narrative where there is one specific type of people that are, and I'm not talking about race. I'm talking about just people, like whether it's ideology, uh, race, um, ethnic background, class background, whatever it is, you know, like Marx, for, for Karl Marx, it was the, the, the bourgeoisie and the managerial class like they were the ones who were responsible for all the wrongs of the world and once you just overthrew them everything would be right and that's kind of the simplistic narrative that we see you know these people these people the boogeymen are responsible for at every step and every every point they're responsible for everything you know we were good and pure and we had everything figured out and then they came and screwed it up through their all their their treachery and their their you know like you know, depending on if it's a spiritual narrative, you know, it was a, they were possessed by the devil and they overcame the good people. It's like, well, okay, uh, I guess the good people weren't that good. <laughs> but this is where people are trying to, they're trying to get a narrative that they are willing to accept that helps them make sense of the world. And... <clears throat> You know, people would say, well, TJ, do you think that you have a simplistic view of the world? I'd say on some stuff, yeah, it probably is more simplistic, but just because I, I'm not exposed to it. And if someone were to point out, oh, it was a little bit more complicated than that, uh, okay, I, it wouldn't shock me because I'm aware that oftentimes when you read about stuff, you re, you, you're, you're thinking, okay, this is a little bit more nuanced than what I suspected. And I've gotten to the point where I assume that there's more nuance with pretty much anything that I read about. You know, you have the, the 20,000 foot view of a history lesson, but then you got to go actually read about what happened. And then you discover, oh, the villains, you know, they're, in a lot of cases, not all cases, in a lot of cases, the villains were not nearly as bad as they were said, or some of the villains weren't nearly as villainous. Uh, a lot of it's contextual. It's, so it's been interesting to see how these people are trying to use their narrative to explain what's going on in the world around them right now. There was one I was going to I was going to critique in a in a in the podcast and you know play. There was a video that was sent over to me and I was like, okay, I feel like I need to critique it. I chose not to just because it's it's a one of many groups, and it's a pattern I see. My, my admonishment, my, my uh, assertion, my argument, my plea, whatever you want to call it, is that people not adopt simplistic views of the world where it's just so cut and dry. Because that's just not how life is. I mean, people are very, com people are very complicated human beings. This is just uh, something I discovered uh, earlier than a lot of people is that there may be somebody that you think was the greatest person in the world because of the way they treated you, but then you discovered that they were 
someone else has legitimate reasons to resent them and not want to ever talk to them again because of the way that they treated them. Because they may have been a good person to you. They not necessarily means that they were a good person to other people. And likewise, there may have been somebody who treated you badly for whatever reason. And it, not necessarily, it may be uh, not logical or rational. Maybe it's psychological or it's, it's just like what, whatever it is. But they were, they were a bad person to you, but to other people, they were a lifesaver. You know, there's, this is not the best analogy or comparison or just example. It's fictional. It's also not, you know, everyone hated him, but Ebenezer Scrooge in the, the Christmas Carol, he resents his nephew because his sister, who was the only person he felt who, who ever loved him, died giving birth to him. So he resents him for nothing that he's done, just like, you killed my sister. Like that's how he sees it. Or he's just has trouble accepting him, which is funny because in the books, that's exactly what happened to Ebenezer Scrooge. His mother died giving birth to him. His dad never forgave him and, you know, sent him away and he felt abandoned. Right. But this is an example of where, uh, you know, obviously Ebenezer Scrooge in the book was not liked by anybody at that point, but imagine that, you know, there's somebody who's had that kind of experience in real life where, they are just either reacting on a psychological mental level towards somebody for no rational reason and they don't even necessarily realize it but they're completely fine with other people that, again that's the complexity of the world where people don't necessarily treat other people bad because they hate them or they have anything against them it's because they don't know how to deal with their, the, the complex, frankly, like looking at the narrative, like just because somebody died giving birth to somebody else, that, that there's nothing that they, that person could have done. That wasn't their fault. But it's their way of processing grief and it doesn't make them, and it, what they're doing is wrong, obviously it's, and it's, and it's very harmful. It doesn't mean they're doing it because they hate someone. But the reason why people adopt that stuff is because it, I think one, we have a lot of like going back to what I was saying, we have a lot of access to information. We, we are exposed to things all over the world and we have to try and make sense of that stuff. Like India, there are parts of India, I'm sure that are very wealthy, but we don't think of India as a rich country because it's got, a, and it's got a billion people there. I mean, China and India have more combined have like 2.3 2.2 billion people that's a lot of people like how do you summarize a country that has a billion people in it i i is that even realistic to expect of people say what do you think of india i don't know i it, it's a billion people who knows what's there? We, we have generalizations, but that helps us process information. It helps us kind of, I have an idea of like, how do you reference a country of a billion people or describe it in one sentence? How do you describe China in one sentence when it has a billion people and there's 300 million people there that are a minority, which is the size of the United States of America? 
or the country formerly known as the United States of America. You know, how do you describe America? Most, pe most people, if you go around the world, think of Los Angeles and New York. Like those are the two areas they think of New York City and Los Angeles. That's how they perceive America. And not because they're ignorant or not because they haven't done their research. That is just how they process information because it's such a big country and there's so many different areas of it. You know, I don't think stereotypes, one, stereotypes exist because they're, they're true, but I think also it's, that's how people process, that's, that's how they just deal with that stuff because there's just, you know, you, you generalize because you don't have the time or it's just not that big of a deal. You know, where you don't get to generalize is when your behavior affects the people that you're generalizing or the person that you're generalizing. Like, oh, well, you know, if they're from this area, then this is what they are. And I'm gonna not, you know, give it. Like, then we get into prejudice and bigotry and all that other stuff and, and that's where it's not good. I mean, this is where you, you can't afford to be simple-minded or have a simplistic view of the world when you are making a decision that is connected or contextually within that situation. You know, the more I read history, the more I realize how complicated it is. And you can't just... You can generalize if you want to, but I, you know, like for example, people talk about the dark ages. Well, yeah, there were some things that were not so great about the middle ages that you can call dark ages, but I'm sorry. Uh, have you looked at some of the buildings that they built? Some of the architecture that they, that they designed? Some of the literature that they produced? I, that is not the that is not the outcome, and, and some of the clothing and the tapestries and so, just all this other stuff. Like that is not what primitive, dumb, ignorant, backwoods people do. So we can we can poke fun at some of the stuff all we want about the medieval times and how they didn't understand things, which. Frankly, we're far more ignorant than they were, and we have no excuse because unlike them, we have the internet. <laughs> You know, people can people can go to the Department of Health and figure out, uh, you know, COVID facts, but they instead choose to rely on press conferences. People back in during you know medieval times did not have access to information. I mean, imagine not being able to read or write. You're in, this is you know this is kind of a little off topic, but like your perception of the world. You've never been above a certain elevation. You've never been in a building so high. You've never had a bird's eye view of your own area. You, you can't read and write. Your only understanding of things is through abstract concepts of, oh, Rome is somewhere else. Maybe you've never even seen a map before. You don't know what Italy looks like geographically. You know, all you know, I remember this historian was writing a book about this, just describing how, 
how people in the medieval time looked at their own world and perceived things. And the fact that they didn't have a lot of tall buildings that people would go up and they didn't have a lot of paintings and illustrations and they couldn't read and write. And they still had to like memorize and mentally remember a ton of stuff. You know, you need to know what you, you, and you had to rely on different things. You know, if you wanted to know what time it was, you had to go to the church uh, clock tower if there was one in town. Like that's how you kept your concept of time other than, oh, it's sunrise. I'm able to see we're going to go work. Oh, it's getting dark. We have to go inside. Like you, your world is completely different and how you, the narrative for your life and how you interpret life is going to be very different. I, we, and we saw that, uh, you know, to use the medieval analogy, uh, during the Black Death, people were trying to, trying to create narratives to explain what was going on. And they were almost entirely wrong. And not because they were bad people or ignorant, but it's like they, they were not capable of understanding the medical scientific issues that were going on. They were, they were suffering from a bubonic plague that was being carried by fleas that lived in uh, the fur of rats. And that was what was causing the problem. It was this bubonic plague, but for a lot of people, they were trying to come up with these very simple, cut and dry, easy to understand ways of mentally processing the massive scale of death and devastation that was occurring. Because saying, I don't know, for a lot of people, creates a sense of unknown and what's going to happen next. As opposed to saying, oh, it's God's judgment on us. We should go whip ourselves or, or we, you know, it was due to, you know, dogs or whatever it was. They're trying to make sense of the world that they live in. That's just what people do. They want to make sense. My problem is when people try to make sense of the world in a way that it's not hard to see that it's wrong. But I think the reason why people shy away from dealing with that is because they think, okay, I have to have another narrative um, what happens when I don't? It, 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 you, your life lacks direction. All right. <clears throat> We've talked about that one enough. I think you've gotten the point. I was not brief. Wasn't pretending to be brief. I didn't say I was going to be brief. I will never Well, I might say I'm going to be brief, but I'm not. The other thing I wanted to talk about is this thing, is this a concept that I've been thinking about for a very long time. And I, again, since I've thought about it, I've tested it in the real world. I've engaged in some sociological experiments. Here's my thought. Much of the success for someone learning something new, whether it's reading or writing or learning how to drive or doing uh, sports, whatever it is, whatever it is, much of the determining factor of their long-term success is the energy and environment and mood, the context in which they are taught. So if let's say <clears throat> you're teaching someone how to do 
let's say you're just, I, I'm trying to just throw in something out there and random. Let's say you're teaching someone how to work on cars and you're a muscle head, like you're a muscle car guy. You love cars. You think that the greatest thing in the world, you, you can't shut up about how much you love cars. And you have, let's say uh, a kid brother, you know, he's five years, six years, seven years, eight years younger than you, or he's your nephew. You know, you're the, you're the cool uncle. You're going to do some funkling, fun uncle stuff. And you take him in and he's seeing this all for the first time and you're like, yeah, man, and you're excited and you think you're like, this is such a beautiful car. And you're, you're just bouncing off walls emotionally. Like, yeah, man, this is great. And here's what I love about it. And you're, you're getting really pumped up and enthusiastic about it. And then you're working on the car and you have stuff that goes wrong. You're like, ah, we'll figure it out. And you go get the part. I'm like, oh, we gotta get this part. And here's how it works. And this is what's so amazing. And I, you know, like you're, <clears throat> you have so much enthusiasm and you get him excited. And then when he's trying to work and then you have him work on it, like, hey, are you gonna try this out? Like you're gonna put this part in and this is what this part does. And here's its context within the, the engine. You know, you're gonna work on the radiators. We're gonna we're gonna replace the transmission. Whatever it is, we're we're restoring an old car, and this is all stuff. And you know, he makes a few mistakes. And you're like, yeah, that's just what happens. You make mistakes when you first start out, and then you eventually learn from it, and you grow, and you build. Like, okay, that kid is guaranteed, for the most part, if he's not completely turned off, he's gonna get into muscle cars. He's going to be working on cars. If he's, especially if he's an impressionable kid, and I think that that's another, again, nuance involved. If they're an impressionable kid, they're easily, you know, influenced by their environment. That kid is going to be into muscle cars for the rest of his life because he is being introduced to something at a young age, depending on the age, but I would say young age, you know, 12 years old, 13 years old or whatever. He's being introduced to this in a context that's making him feel good. He's feeling good about being there. He's spending quality time with a relative or a friend or an older brother or whoever it is. Um, it's an, an environment where they feel relaxed and they it's memories that they will remember for the rest of their lives. You know, maybe they're listening to some cool song and it's in the middle of the summer, you know, where it's, warm outside at 7.30 at night in the evening and they're, you know, drinking sodas or whatever, listening to a specific song or whatever. Like that creates memories that a kid will remember for the rest of their lives and that propels them to success because they associate something with certain emotions and emotional energies. Now let's contrast that with someone who, you know, let's say, <clears throat> an older brother we'll just keep with the comparison and he drags the younger brother out there and he's like yeah we got to work on this car and it's broken and you know and just he's he's just venting and talking about how much it sucks and how cars are just problems and they're constantly having issues and it's going to cost all this money like negative energy negative emotions depressing here's all the things wrong with cars here's why they suck and then when the kid makes mistakes, it's like, yeah, like you can't be doing that and all this stuff. Like that kid is not going to want to have anything to do with cars or automobiles or muscle cars. 
because all he's hearing is negative stuff. It's like, I don't want anything to do with this. This is horrible. You know, I'm working on this and I, I'm doing this for the first time and I'm getting humiliated by my brother, my older brother, who's making me feel like I'm dumb just because I don't know how to do this the first time. I don't really want to do this anymore. I don't like being him. Like, no kid wants to be humiliated. You know, it makes him feel bad and he's like yeah i don't want to be a i don't want to associate with that that kid's not going to touch a car at all he's not going to work on a car ever again he's not going to want to handle a, a, a wrench he's not going to want to deal with changing the oil or whatever. he's going to get someone else to do car stuff entirely now let's 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 do a tale of two families let's say two guys 13 years old, both have older brothers who are eight years older, you know, 21. I just described two different scenarios. So does, did, <clears throat> let's say these kids are now 30. They're not, you know, 13 anymore. One of them is driving a muscle car that he restored and he's loving it, whatever. And then the other kid just has a regular car that he doesn't want to touch. He doesn't want to deal with it. It's not due to a lack necessarily of interest. I'm not going to be too general here, but it's not due to a lack of interest on the part of the one kid. It's because he was exposed to it where this they were saying, this is what this world is like. The world of cars is either a wonderful place where you get to work on stuff and you learn things and you save money because you don't have to have a mechanic and it teaches you self-reliance, or you're teaching them, is this horrible? It, it's a pain. All this stuff goes wrong. It's frustrating. I'm frustrated. You should be frustrated. Why are you not getting stuff right? That's going to make them not want to deal with it. And that had nothing to do with them not liking cars. They may have loved cars. So <clears throat> I guess the gist of this is that, you know, people wonder, why is this person good at this thing? Or why are they bad at this thing? Or whatever. It may be a psychological issue. I, you know, there's some people, I'll give an analogy from my own life for comparison. There are some people who I know who see going to the gym as a pain. It's a chore. It's something that they, in their mind, it's something you hate doing, but you have to do to stay in shape. I do not have that attitude at all. For me, going to a gym is like my, it's like going to my sanctuary. It's going to my fortress of solitude. It's, it's a wonderful place. One of the reasons is because I had a gym instructor who opened the doors to the weight room every single morning that we had class and said, welcome to paradise. And then he just was bouncing off the walls. This was a guy in his 60s or 70s. He was bouncing off the walls and talking about how great it was to do weight lifting and how addictive it was and how you got bigger and all. Like, he just always had a smile on face. I can understand how a guy who had a gym instructor who was a total dick and had a negative attitude why he would not want to go and do weightlifting because he didn't have the energy. He, he had someone suck energy out of him rather than put energy in or, or surround him with uh, an energy that he could feed into, a synergy or whatever it's called. But this goes to show kind of the complexities of life is that we think about equal opportunities. There aren't equal opportunities. There's some people who grow up with dads who absolutely love 
like they're so passionate in a positive sense about what they're doing and their kids feed off of it. Then there's some dads or brothers or uncles or whoever it is or teachers who expose a young, and I'm gonna just talk about men, women, someone, a woman can talk about women's experiences. They expose them for the first time to something in a negative or positive light. And if it's prolonged, that's how long, that's what they're gonna see it as for the rest of their lives. So if you have a dad who teaches you about plumbing or indoor, you know, indoor house renovation stuff in a positive sense, you have an opportunity that is, and also if he's skilled at it, you have opportunities that some kid who grew up in a home where their dad didn't know any of that stuff or just didn't like it, those opportunities don't exist. So when people say we want to create equal opportunities, I, I, I hate to say it to you, break it to you. There's some people who they're set up for failure when they're kids. Now they can break out of it, but they would have been much further. What I guess what it's saying is they would be much further along in life if they have the willpower to overcome a lot of adversity and obstacles and challenges and tribulations, that meant how much further would they have been if they had had a solid footing? I did a podcast. I don't remember what it was. You're, you're going to have to look it up. I did one on Howard Hughes about, you know, Howard Hughes, obviously, was, he was born into wealth, but he chose to work and he was very motivated. But imagine how much further he would have had to, how much longer he started out with wealth. His parents died, left him everything. He was able to use that wealth to do the stuff that he wanted to do in life. But he was a motivated guy. If he had been born into a poor middle-class family, he would have had to have spent a huge chunk of his life accumulating the wealth to do the things that he was doing at age 27, 28, 29, 30 at some other later date in his life. Like the equal opportunity thing. Yes, there's some people who are the same person, but you put them in different environments, they're going to have different outcomes. And so trying to make everything fair doesn't work. Trying to make everything equal doesn't work. Because you don't know what it is. Why, like, you don't know why someone is poor and why someone is rich. You don't know why someone is successful in things that they do and why they're not. And people can argue all the time, oh, you pull yourself up on your own bootstraps and you know, you, you just work hard and all this other stuff. There's some people who, who just, that is easy for them because they had a neutral playing field. It was, it was the only limitation is yourself. Other people have dealt with other limit, have dealt with real limitations. And people don't really like that because they like to think in either, you know, there's the people who like to think, oh, I'm not in control of what happens to me. In some ways that's true, but not always. And then there's some people who have this, like everything that's happened, good, everything that like, their life has been over, overall good. It all happened because of me. I made it happen. No, you yeah, actually, you didn't. Like things happened that benefited you but this idea that it, it, after a certain point that everything, no, that's, it just, it's not how it is. 
you know, I, I see too much of that stuff with these people who, who just, they completely lack any self-awareness of, oh, you think that maybe if you hadn't had that mentor or you hadn't had that person helping you out, that you would be where you are today? You know, it's not like saying you're not responsible for your own actions, but understand how other people's actions affect your life as well. You don't control your environment that much. And people can make, people in your life can make, your, can make it easier or much more difficult for you to get to be where you want to be. So on that note, <clears throat> I think we're done with this podcast. Uh, you can go to tjmartinell.com and I'll have the links to all my stuff. If you're smart, you'll figure it out. I got books. My books are great. They're the greatest. Latest one is Legend of Ferenia. If you like Zelda, you will like this book. You need to buy the book. Uh, we need to get this book's rankings up. Um, and you also need to leave a review on Amazon. So thank you for listening to this episode of the Mountain Pass Podcast. This is your host, TJ Martinell, coming to you from my new fortress, Americana, in the heart of Cascadia. Signing off.